I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Deuteronomy chapters 24 through 27. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We begin in Deuteronomy chapter 24 talking about marriages. Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Well, here's a provision under the Mosaic law that restricts a man from remarrying a woman after his divorce from her and her subsequent remarriage to another man. It would appear that this law is designed to protect the second marriage from emotions which may be potentially revived between the original marriage partners. This is a bridge-burning law that says you can't go back. What might this uncleanness of verse 1 involve? After all, the realization that a Hebrew woman wasn't a virgin after one marries her is dealt with in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 30, and the penalty for this unfaithfulness was stoning to death. No divorce required there. Likewise, death by stoning is the outcome specified for adultery in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. However, there are at least a couple of situations that come to mind where a woman taken in marriage may not be a virgin. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, we see a situation where an innocent woman is no longer a virgin. Another scenario might be the woman taken prisoner and subsequently taken as a wife by her Hebrew captor, as seen in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. In both instances, we have the possibility that one might marry a woman who was not a virgin at marriage and become dissatisfied afterward because of the discovered uncleanness. Then we have some miscellaneous laws in verses 5 through 22. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. No man shall take the lore or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight." 
You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert judgment do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow." And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. So here we have some criminal laws and some civil laws. In verse number 5, we see that a man is draft exempt for a year after getting married to cheer up his wife. Notice also Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7, which says, And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. In verse 6, we see that there is no taking one's survival tools as loan collateral. The millstone was made up of two stones, a really big stone as the base, with a small stone of five pounds or so that fit in one's hand, and that was for the purpose of grinding grain. A poor person depended upon this tool for his food. Under the law, this tool could not be taken as security for a loan. In verse 7, we see death to kidnappers for the purpose of selling them as slaves. Hey, isn't that how they ended up in Egyptian captivity in the first place after the brothers sold Joseph into slavery? Nice law. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see that keeping the laws regarding leprosy and remembering Miriam's bout with it in Numbers chapter 12 is also emphasized and important. If you want to see the notes on leprosy, and the procedures for dealing with leprosy, look at the notes on Leviticus chapter 13. In verses 10 through 13, we see that collateral for a loan cannot be repossessed from the borrower's home. It must be brought out. The poor man's basic cloak, which he uses as his night clothing, is used as collateral. Then it must be returned before nightfall. In verses 14 and 15, we see that the poor man must be paid his wages at the end of every day he works. In verse 16, we see that you can only be executed for your own sin, not the sin of a father or a child. In verses 17 and 18, we see that the legal rights of the foreigner and the poor person must be protected. And finally, verses 19 to 22, leave something in the field after the harvest for foreigners and poor people to glean. While the Hebrews were the covenanted people, their relationship with God is in view there, it's interesting to note the provisions made in the law of Moses for foreigners. Notice verses 17, 18, 20, and 21. 
As a matter of fact, notice Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. That verse says, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. This generosity stops short, however, of ever being king over the Israelites. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. And a Hebrew could charge interest on a loan to a stranger, but he could not charge interest on a loan to a fellow Hebrew. And that's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20. Another interesting provision for the foreigner living among the Hebrews was that he could be given certain foods to eat that were unclean to the Hebrews, and thus they were forbidden to eat them, and that's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. Now let's talk about beatens when we get over to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked... Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him, and no more, lest he should exceed this, and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So we see here that a beaten has an upper limit of forty wax. I guess that's some consolation. Rabbis in the first century decreed 39 stripes instead of 40. They wanted to be certain that there was a margin for error so as to not exceed the letter of the law, just in case of a miscount. The Apostle Paul was so beaten five times according to his own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, when he says, "...from the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one." In the case of these law-prescribed beatings... The judge was to oversee the beating as the BT was to lie face down on the ground for the punishment. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, we have just one verse that deals with letting the oxen eat while they work. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, Paul makes reference to this verse when talking about preachers getting paid in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what he says. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul also quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Then in chapter 25, beginning with verse 5 through verse 10, we have the issue of what's called a leveret marriage. Verse 5, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. So in Israel, 
It was your family obligation after your brother's untimely death to take his wife and give her an opportunity to bear a child. So what if you refuse? Well, better get ready for some public humiliation then, in front of the whole city. The dead brother's name would be continued through the birth of the son conceived under this provision of the Mosaic Law. Now, this procedure was not new under the Mosaic Law. We first get a glimpse of this brotherly responsibility in Genesis chapter 38 with Judah and his first son, Er. We then see this scenario played out between Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. Some have sought to make this law socially compatible with contemporary standards by specifying that the obligation existed only when the brother had not previously married prior to his brother's death. Well, there's no scriptural evidence to support this notion. In fact, providing an heir was the issue here. The widow needed an heir for her dead husband, and the remaining brother was obligated to provide that heir in his brother's name without regard to the one or more wives that he may already have. In Hebrew culture, marriages under these circumstances are known as leveret marriages. A property rights issue is probably in view here. If a widow without children marries outside of her husband's clan, that portion of the family inheritance of land may end up in the hands of another clan. This ensures that the property stays where it was intended. Incidentally, the special circumstances of this law overrides the stipulations of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. Both of those passages forbid one from marrying his brother's wife, but, as I mentioned, not in this case. Now, Jesus touches on the provisions of this law when he's asked a question by the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22, Mark 12, and Luke chapter 20. You may want to go look at that, see the stipulations that Jesus outlined there. Beginning with verse 11, two verses, 11 and 12, we see that wives probably need to stay out of their husband's fight. Verse 11, if two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall not pity her. Ouch! A wife can lose a hand by coming to the aid of her husband in a fight if she's not careful. Punch, kick, bite, scratch, whatever you want to do, but she must be careful about the bodily location of her aggression. Don't you dare pull out those phony scales. We see that in verses 13 through 16. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So we see here that inaccurate scales were illegal, and it was also illegal to cheat someone by deliberately falsely weighing the product. Interestingly enough, Consumer protection laws, they had them back then as well. Specifically, if one were buying, he might have pulled out a heavier weight to balance it on his scales against the product he was purchasing, getting more for his money. On the other hand, if he were selling, he might pull out the lesser weight against which he balanced the product, thus giving less product for the purchase price. And that was definitely illegal under Mosaic Law. In verses 17 through 19, we have three verses on Amalek. 
Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the struggles at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget." Well, here's a Hebrew position as endorsed by the law. The Amalekites, they hate us, and we're not crazy about them either. Remember when God judged Israel for refusing to go take Canaan after the return of the 12 spies in Numbers chapter 14? They decided to try to reverse God's judgment by going up against the Amalekites into Canaan by their own might, and they were thoroughly whipped in battle. That's in Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 to 45. However... The reference here looks back to their immediate exodus from Egypt when the Amalekites dogged them in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. And that was Israel's first big battle, and they prevailed. But wait, that's still not enough. This revives under Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he goes after the Amalekites, and he's motivated by this very command. According to the Jewish Study Bible, and I quote, these verses are read liturgically on the Sabbath before Purim, since according to Jewish tradition, Haman, the evil protagonist of Esther, is an Amalekite, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8, and Esther chapter 8, verse 3. That's where they derive that information. Then we have a word about tithes and offerings with a little ceremony to boot in chapter 26, verses 1 through 15. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. 
I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the Hebrews couldn't just drop their offerings off and then leave. They had to recite to the officiating priest the history lesson of their people going back to Jacob, the Aramean Syrian in verses 5 through 9. This all took place back at the location of the tabernacle. Every third year the tithe was taken and given for the provision of the poor and the Levites, we see in verse 12. Probably not taken to the central location of the tabernacle, but to a place designated by each tribe. There was a ritual saying that went with this offering as well. It's found in verses 13 to 15. And that offered a commitment to God and expressed thankfulness for his provisions. Again, notice that this was a mandatory tithe, which in effect was how the government provided for the needs of their government servants and for the poor. If you'd like more on this issue, this every third year tithe, look at my notes on Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 to 29. Then we have the final word on these statutes in verses 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made, in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Well, the second giving of the law is now complete. These four verses cap it off with an exhortation to adhere carefully to the stipulations of the covenant the Lord has established with these Hebrews. The special status of the Hebrew people before God is once again stated in these four verses. In chapter 27, we have the setup for an awesome sight, which is going to be taking place when we get over to the book of Joshua. Verse 1, Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them." You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God." Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God, and observe his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. 
And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Well, here we go. Remember the Gerizim Ebalb service we talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 11, where two million plus Hebrews will be shouting their acceptance of the cursings and blessings of the law? Well, here are some more very specific instructions about how this event is to take place, which doesn't actually happen until we get over to Joshua chapter 8. Hey, be patient. It takes time to put together a two million voice choir. The actual event that is described here, the reading of the cursings and the blessings, that actual event takes place over in Joshua chapter 8, verses 29 to 35. It'll be an earth-shaking vocal experience. So the advanced team will write all the words of this law, we see in verse 3, upon stones on the other side of the Jordan before this big event. These two mountaintops are about one mile apart over on the Canaan side of the Jordan River. Half of the Hebrew tribes will stand on Mount Ebal, and we see those as being Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The other half will stand on Mount Gerizim, that's Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Joseph, and Benjamin. The Levites then will stand in the middle, and they'll read the curses. And the people on the mountains will cry, Amen! Verses 15 to 26 list those curses which are to be read at the big gathering. We'll see the reading of the blessings with the additional curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 when we get over to that chapter in the next reading. And by the way, um, if you'd like to get a visual image of this, these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, with Shechem down in the valley in the middle where the Levites will stand and read the, the law, the curses and the blessings, there's a, 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 a picture, a photo that I've provided comes from BiblePlaces.com to give you some perspective. This concludes our podcast for today. 
I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.